Thank you for listening to Invisible Choir. This episode contains sensitive material, including graphic depictions of violence or abuse against children, which some listeners may find especially distressing or traumatic. Listener discretion is advised. What exactly is a godly seed? Welcome to Episode 2 of Invisible Choir. I'm your host, Michael Ojibwe. We've got an extremely difficult case for you today, and before we begin, I feel compelled to reiterate the warning at the top of this episode. We will be covering crimes against children in graphic detail. If you are at all squeamish or sensitive, now is the time to shut the episode off. You've been warned. For those remaining, we're going to dive right into a timely case. It's the tale of a father who refused to relinquish control. And when faced with the inevitable, losing custody of his children, he did the unthinkable, committing one of the most senseless and depraved crimes we've ever heard of. So turn the volume up, sit down, and remember to never whistle at night, because there may be more lurking in the shadows than darkness. Did you tell us earlier? So Natan was was dead, and then what happened? And I followed suit with the other four. And how did how did you so kill that them? That was with my hands. With your hands? Can you describe what you mean by with your hands? Around their neck. Around their neck. We've all heard of, and some of us have even experienced the feelings of unconditional parental love. It's often described as an intense and overpowering swell of sudden emotion, a selfless desire to care for and nurture a new life, even if it comes at our own detriment. It's different than a romantic love or the love we feel for extended friends or family. Some say that the ultimate irony in raising a child is that that child can never truly comprehend the depths of parental love until that moment when they themselves become parents. It's a newfound respect and mutual understanding. But what happens when that bond is prematurely broken? What happens when you look into the eyes of your child and despite your good intentions, you know you may not be the perfect parent this child deserves or needs? What happens when self-doubt and insecurities seep into a mind that was once itself raised into an environment of abuse, violence, neglect, or abandonment? We all experience doubts at some point in our lives, but they are quelled by time and experience. What happens when you lack a solid foundation to get you through life's adversities? What happens when you can't look back at your own childhood and use it as a guide for how to best move forward? Where would you turn for answers? For some, religion is the way. If someone offered you a literal roadmap to parenthood, in the quest for perfect children, would you follow the path? Well, that is exactly what happened to Timothy Jones Jr. when he was introduced to the Pentecostal church while attending a court-ordered boot camp in his late teens. He was given a Bible and was welcomed with wide open arms into an entire community, a community that accepted him for the flawed person that he was. Tim was offered the type of unconditional love he never found in his own childhood. And with the help of his new Christian family, he was going to raise perfect children in accordance with the Holy Scripture. He was going to raise godly seeds. In other words, don't hold back from correcting your child the child will not die. You know, sometimes children act like they're gonna die. 
when they're getting a spanking. Sometimes they sound like they're going to die when they're going to get a spanking. But God says, don't worry about it. They're not going to die. If you do it the way that I told you last evening, you don't have to have any worry in your mind. They're not going to die. Don't hold back because you hear sounds that sound like a child is going to die. You will save the child from an early death brought on by a reckless life. On the night of August 28, 2014, Tim was following his religious teachings manual entitled Raising Godly Seeds to help him in his quest for raising perfectly respectful and obedient children. Jones was a recently divorced father with primary custody of his five children, ranging in age from one to eight years old. On this night, he was disciplining his six-year-old son, Natan, whom he suspected had broken several electrical outlets. Tim followed the religious tenets he believed in and promptly spanked Natan. He was all in and didn't hold anything back. After all, he didn't want his children leading, quote, reckless lives. But no matter how hard he hit his son, little Natan refused to admit breaking the outlets. I questioned Natan about the four outlets that he blew. After a series of not getting any favorable responses out of him, I tried to use more harsh measures to just try to get out of him what was going on because I didn't know what he was doing. I seen four destroyed outlets. Uh, is it for me, him? Was he curious? I just didn't know what was going on. I was trying to make sense of it. I worked him too hard, or maybe it was a combination of the electricity. I know electricity takes electrolytes out of your body. Uh, something happened. It was out of the ordinary, and he would tell me. If I would have known it, I mean, I, I would have got him medical help and whatnot, but I don't know what he did, and he didn't tell me. I didn't see any burn marks on his body, so that's why I didn't rush him to the hospital. So after the fact, he, he was deceased. And then what, what happened to him? What, how, how did he get deceased? What, what did you do? I sent him to bed after I worked him real hard because he wouldn't answer me. And, and what, what do you mean by working him too hard? I just PT'd his ass till he couldn't handle it. Tried cracking him on butt a couple times to get something out of him to tell me what was he doing. Right. What's his motive? And when you're saying PT, and what, what are we talking about? Squats and push-ups. Squats, push-ups. How, how long were you having him PT? I'm PT like an hour. Little six-year-old Natan's dad, quote, PT'd his ass to death. PT is military slang for physical training. But it wasn't just physical training that Jones subjected his son to on that cool Thursday evening. Jones told investigators he had his son do squats and push-ups for nearly an hour and also had him stand on his toes for long periods of time while holding his hands high up in the air. He literally forced his underweight, malnourished, 40-pound six-year-old child to hold himself still in uncomfortable positions for brutally long periods of time. Jones joined the military right out of high school, with dreams of one day becoming a Navy SEAL. But just 44 days into basic training, he was discharged. He later claimed to family members that he was released on medical grounds, specifically that he had problems with his hip. But that was a lie. Tim's hip was just fine. Though he was still unable to progress through more than six weeks of basic training, he expected his son to exhibit the same kinds of sustained endurance that he himself was unable to exhibit during a short-lived military trial. In fact, the real reason Tim was dismissed from the Navy was due to a previously undiagnosed and unspecified depressive disorder. Like an angry drill instructor, he continued to punish his six-year-old son until his little body could no longer fight, and he died. Like I said, there's nothing out of the ordinary. Those kids would do insanity with me. We had fun doing it. And where did he go from, you're doing this, where in the house? Where are you PC? This was in the living room, and then I finally got tired of it and sent him to bed. Okay. to bed. You're not telling me the truth. I can't help you. Go to bed, man. You're wasting everybody's time. And then and then you, you find out what? I come back and find out that he's deceased. And when I find out he's deceased, then the shit hits the fan and all. How does the shit hit the fan, Tim? The voices start going off, and then here comes the paranoia. Oh shit, what just happened? What, 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 what just happened? This ain't gonna go, I can't call the blah, blah. I got all these voices running through my head now. 
And then what happens to him? What did you tell us earlier? So Natan was, was dead. And then what happened? And I followed suit with the other four. And how did how did you so kill that was with my hands? With your hands? Can you describe what you mean by with your hands? Around their neck. Around their neck? Okay. <laughs> who, who was next? I'm just going to put the order so I don't have to go into too much detail. Okay. Just, just tell right. us the order. Natan, Mira, Elias, Gabriel. Wait, wait, wait. Natan, Eli, Mira, Gabriel, Elias. After a long night of running his son through a gauntlet of torturous exercises, Jones sent him directly to bed for allegedly refusing to tell him the truth, only to find him a short time later, deceased. Jones didn't exhibit the typical fatherly reaction most would in the same situation. He didn't call 911 for help. He didn't try to revive his son. Instead, he thought only of the consequences to himself. He knew he would be in trouble for Natan's death and believed the next logical step was to coldly and methodically murder his other four children. First, he strangled his eight-year-old daughter, Mira Grace, closing his bare hands around her tiny neck until she ceased to struggle. Next, he strangled his seven-year-old son, Elias, by placing his loving hands around his throat and ending his young life. After Elias was dead, Tim moved on to his two-year-old son, Gabriel. However, Gabe's neck was too small to obtain a sufficient grip, so Jones took off his belt and wrapped it around Gabriel's neck, applying a tourniquet-like pressure until he finally stopped struggling. Last was the baby, one-year-old Abigail, whom he had unofficially renamed Elaine. Jones secured and tightened the belt around Elaine's neck until she too was gone. This was Jones' recounting of the night he took his children's lives, although it would later be revealed that he failed to mention a few critical steps in between Natan's accidental death from too much PT and coldly and callously murdering his other four children. Instead of protecting them with his own dying breath as he promised all those years ago when each entered into the world, he instead stole away their last life-sustaining breaths with his own bare hands. Jones had failed to protect his children from their biggest threat, the ultimate enemy within himself. What Jones also failed to mention to investigators during his confession was a phone call with ex-wife Amber Kaiser. Pursuant to their custody agreement, Amber could call each night at 7 p.m. with the understanding that Tim would allow her to speak to the children. Tim relished the control primary custody permitted him over his ex-wife and would often fabricate clever excuses for why the children were unavailable to speak with their mother. Any perceived infraction, no matter how tiny or insignificant, was justifiable in Timothy's eyes to deny his children and his ex-wife their nightly reprieve. More often than not, Amber didn't get to speak to her children, yet she would continue to call night after night in hopes of eventually hearing their voices. I would call Tim's phone. I heard my son crying. And I asked him what was wrong. My son, Natan. I said, son, what's wrong? He said, Mom, I didn't mean to. And Tim was going on in the background, and you could have killed yourself, son. And then God mad at me because I was trying to calm my son down. What did you say to him? That it was okay. What could you hear the time doing? Dry heaving. Like, like that like gasping for air because he had been crying so much like he couldn't catch his breath and Tim got mad and, and said why do you always have to defend the kids I guess you could say I always defended the kids he was more the disciplinary I was not I went on 
to disagree with him and, and, and let him know that I didn't think, that I thought that my son had gotten the point and that I was tired of hearing my kids crying all the time. And Tim, Tim hung up the phone and told, before he hung up the phone, told me to shut the fuck up and hung up the phone. As it turns out, Tim had also been interrogating his son for hours about the electrical outlets. And still, he refused to admit touching them. But once Natan heard his mother's voice, he started to gain hope that she would fix the situation and make everything better. He immediately blurted out to Amber, quote, I didn't mean to do it, Mom. The easy admission to his mother sent Tim into a blinding rage. He was outraged that his son would so easily confess to her after he had spent hours spanking and PTing him as the religious text advised, and that his method brought no resolution in the way only a mother's calming voice could. But it wasn't just the phone call that caused Tim's rage to boil over. He had other reasons to be upset with his children. Tim believed that his daughter Mira and son Natan orchestrated a conspiracy against him with the South Carolina Department of Social Services in an attempt to transition custody to their mother. Over the past six months, the children's school and the children's former babysitter had both reported Tim to the authorities for child abuse. They alleged he was abusing the children by withholding food as a means of punishment and strangling Elias after a minor school infraction, which left visible bruising on the boy's neck. In order to maintain primary custody, Tim agreed to deploy alternative methods of punishment to his children. In his mind, that agreement ended when the Department of Social Services resolved and closed their cases. There were no special protections in place preventing him from going back to his firm beliefs in the application of biblical corporal punishment. Tim's rage, coupled with these lack of restrictions, along with the rejection he felt from both Natan and Amber, collided this night with fatal consequences. Tim met Amber when she was just 19 years old at a children's event center called the Enchanted Castle where they both worked. Tim was 24 at the time and in school to become a computer engineer. Amber was estranged from her family with no real world experience. She hadn't even graduated from high school. She was immediately enamored by Tim and was attracted to his intelligence and desire to care for her. She believed Tim was the smartest man she had ever met and envisioned a happy life together. Tim invited her to the Assemblies of God Pentecostal Church where he explained that he intended to live a godly life, using the Bible as his guide. The only problem with Tim's beliefs was his very literal interpretation of Scripture. Are those beliefs that he espoused, are those part of the Pentecostal faith? No. No, I'm part of the Assemblies of God. It's the largest Pentecostal denomination in the world with over 70 million adherents. Um, one in four Christians in the world are Pentecostal. The Assemblies of God is, is second to the Catholic Church in, in adherence. And the Assemblies of God is, does not believe in violence or extreme punishments of children. And um, for the most part, we've been a nonviolent uh, movement um, so it's not a part of the Pentecostal church, but there may be Pentecostals that have views like that. In contrast with the beliefs of the Pentecostal church, Tim would pick and choose scriptures and apply them literally in accordance with how he expected those around him to behave. In that regard, Tim explained to Amber, in religious terms, how he was the head of the household and that women were to support their husbands at all costs. Amber agreed and readily accepted all of the new changes Tim's chosen religion brought, some more radical than others. Tim believed women shouldn't cut their hair, as it was viewed as an affront to God who stated in the Bible, it is a woman's crowning glory. 1 Corinthians states, quote, But if a woman have long hair, for her hair is given her for a covering. Tim also had strong convictions with regard to appearance as well. He believed women shouldn't wear pants, 
only dresses, and that they shouldn't use makeup or wear jewelry. Tim's church didn't believe in long dating periods either, as it could be too enticing and lead to committing sin. So, all things considered and in line with the holy text, six weeks after meeting on June 29, 2004, Tim and Amber were married and committed themselves to live within Tim's strict interpretation of the guidelines of the Pentecostal church. However, soon after they married, Tim began to change. He was no longer the loving and supportive man who cared for Amber. Instead, he wanted to control her. He informed her that they would not use birth control as it was against the word of God. They would have and raise as many children as God would give them. Tim informed Amber her new job was to listen to her husband and never talk back. Despite living together in student housing, Tim and Amber began having children while Tim continued working towards his degree. There was no question that Amber would stay at home with their children and homeschool them, giving up the last bit of independence she had in accordance with church practice. Their first child, Mira, was born in 2006, followed by Elias 11 months later in 2007. A year after that, Natan was born. And following Natan's birth, Amber gave birth to a stillborn daughter and had several other miscarriages. Tim blamed her for each of the tragic losses, as though she wasn't righteous or godly enough to be given more children. Eventually, Amber does get pregnant again with Gabriel, who was ultimately born in 2011. It's during this pregnancy that Tim graduates summa cum laude and gets a job in South Carolina working for Intel as a computer software engineer. Despite earning a salary of almost $80,000 a year, he decides to buy an isolated and uninhabitable trailer on a piece of land where he intends to, quote, homestead. The trailer didn't have working bathrooms or running water when they first moved into it. Even so, Tim immediately began buying animals to stock the yard, including chickens, goats, rabbits, and cats and dogs. In addition to raising and homeschooling the children, the animals also became part of Amber's daily chores. Overwhelmed by the isolation, she quickly fell into a deep depression. Without a driver's license or a car of her own, she was stuck inside the decrepit trailer without any other adult interaction. She quickly found herself depressed and fully dependent upon Tim for all of her basic needs. Tim expected Amber to keep the children clean and quiet and away from him when he returned home from work each night. When Amber failed at any of her jobs, Tim would spit in her face, call her a whore, and push, shove, and hit her. The constant abuse rendered her deeply unhappy in the marriage, but without any means to support herself or the children, she began to feel trapped, with no way to escape. As time passed and loneliness set in, Amber would begin seeking refuge with a neighbor down the road from their property. After nine years of marriage, which included daily degradation and ongoing abuse, Amber engaged in an extramarital affair with her neighbor's 19-year-old son. Newly pregnant and unsure who the father was, Amber worked up the courage to tell Tim she wanted a divorce. In anger, Tim moved out of the trailer and immediately had all of the utilities shut off and refused to give Amber any money for basic needs such as food or diapers. Amber, realizing she had nothing to offer the children and no means of supporting them, allowed Tim to move back into the trailer. This arrangement doesn't last for long and she decides the best solution is to move out and in with her neighbor. Incensed by Amber's repeated attempts to reestablish her independence, Tim no longer allows her to see the children until she discontinues, quote, living in sin. Tim takes the children from Amber and whisks them away to his father and stepmother's house in Mississippi. He refuses to bring them back until Amber agrees to his custody terms. He explains that she will never get custody and she'll never be able to afford to fight him for custody. After Tim hires a lawyer and files for divorce and full custody, Amber's fears of losing her children are coming true. Without resources of her own and believing Tim's assertions, she agrees to sign his egregiously one-sided custody arrangement. 
She also agrees that once her new baby is born, they will take a paternity test, and if the child proves to be Tim's, he will take custody of that child as well. In fact, the child would be born in December of 2012, and Amber would name her Abigail. However, once the paternity test established that Tim was the father, he took control of naming her baby away from her too. He unofficially renamed the baby Elaine. Pursuant to the custody terms, Amber is allowed to see the children once per week at a local Chick-fil-A. Tim only allows her to arrive by public transportation. She is not allowed to have her boyfriend or his mother drive her to see the kids, nor is she allowed to see her children outside of Tim's presence. Amber is allowed to call her children every night at 7 p.m. to speak with them. After seeing how upset the children became after their separation, Amber wrote their eldest daughter, Mira, a letter, which she would later read aloud at Timothy's murder trial, expressing her unconditional love for all five of the children. Mira, my sweet, sweet daughter, I know that your heart feels heavy and that you feel really sad sometimes. I want to reassure you, sweetheart, that you, along with your brothers and sister, mean everything to me. You kids are my world, and Mommy and Daddy were very blessed to have you. Oh, God. Oh, God. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. No! 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 Amber continues seeking her independence after the separation, eventually earning her GED, learning to drive, and working in a management position at Walmart so she could begin paying child support to the tune of $250 per month. When the children would cry out for their mother, Timothy punished them. He explained how their mother was a whore and didn't want them, and also didn't want them to live with her. He would send Amber videos of the children crying and begging their mom to repent her sinful ways and come home to be a family again. These videos were so difficult to watch that she considered returning to Tim just so she could end her children's obvious pain. However, as she continued to improve herself and became more independent and responsible, she also became a threat to Tim. That threat was amplified when Tim was investigated by the Department of Children's Services for alleged child abuse. It would be just a few months later that all of Amber's children would be dead. Where in the house did you say these happened at? In, in the house? The bedroom, or not bedroom, the, the living room. Okay. What, what did you do um, earlier, you, you said, when you would strangle them? What would you do with the bodies at that point? At that point, I was just running on fear and I wasn't thinking. Any normal person would have said, let me call the police and turn myself in. Okay. I took the coward route and started following those voices in my head, which led me down such a nice path I'm on today. And what, what did you do then? What do you mean? With the bodies. I put them in bags and threw them on the hill. Okay, no, no, no. When when you're at the house, oh, load them. I just load them in the car. Did you put them in the bag at that time? I don't know. Okay. I was just five bodies. You put them in in the vehicle. Uh, what type of vehicle was that? Cadillac Escalade. All right. And what do you do from there? I start driving out of fear. Tim, tell us what was your original plan to do with the bodies? Now that we've had a chance to talk about it. I don't know what my original plan was. I had so many thoughts going through my mind. What, what were some of them? Because you brought some notes and you bought some I had a hundred different thoughts about what I could do. Okay. I don't want to sit and incriminate myself, but no, I, had, fine. I had a bunch of different things. I, you know, one, d -d 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 -d. We went over this, but part of your plan was to do what? The bodies. 
I think originally I intended to go do all that stuff that I wrote down on the paper, but Which then I couldn't what? bring myself to it. Right? Which I, what was it? Tim was doing his best to lay down a foundation for his eventual insanity defense. He insisted to investigators he was not in control of his actions that night. Though it was clear, he built a marriage based entirely out of intimidation, fear, and control in the years preceding. Tim alleged he had been ignoring the voices inside of his head since childhood. It was those same voices that were inside his head as he approached a rural logging road off Route 10 in Alabama. They had guided him there to casually dispose of his children's bodies, as if they were literal roadside trash. Did you stuff to get rid of the corpse? Do you remember what step one was? You know, like, dissolve them or something like that. I was going to cut them up. And you were gonna, I was going to do all kinds of did stuff. Did you write down that you were going to burn the bodies? I think I was going to burn them, yeah. And you were going to, what was step two? Boil them or I forget what it was. That's what I'm trying to tell you. I don't remember everything. Yeah. Yeah. Did you write that you were going to... Um, I wrote stuff down that it was in the context of that time, but... All right. Was it something that you were going to uh, cut the bodies up? Something I could bring myself to do, yes. All right. Jones stuffed his children's bodies into trash bags after killing them and placed them behind the driver's seat in his Cadillac Escalade. He drove for days with his children's bodies decaying in the back seat. Moving along from state to state, he began formulating a plan. Tim conducted a series of Google searches, which included, quote, best places without extradition to the U.S., and the names of nearby landfills. He searched on whether or not scent dogs could find human remains in a landfill. Tim was also self-medicating with an over-the-counter drug called Spice. It was a synthetic cannabinoid, which is comprised of a mix of laboratory chemicals sprayed onto a shredded plant material. It can be smoked, snorted, or ingested, and is considered an illegal drug by the DEA. To avoid DEA regulatory requirements, the manufacturers are constantly changing the names of the substance as well as its chemical formula. To slip through customs, it is often packaged and sold as natural incense or even bath salts. People who use synthetic cannabinoids often report feelings of altered perception, psychosis, feeling detached from reality, confusion, violence, and sometimes hallucinations. Tim insisted he began smoking spice only after the death of his children to quiet the voices inside of his head. He also started making lists. While his children were rotting inside of the SUV, he drove to a Walmart and purchased a dust mask, a handsaw, trash bags, muriatic acid, and a five-gallon pail. On the back of the Walmart receipt, Tim wrote, Day one, burn bodies. Day two, saw down bones. Day three, MB smiley face, dissolve and discard. We later find out MB stood for Mexican border. Now, you said you were, you're just driving around, you had the bodies in the car, and where were you going at that time? Nowhere, I guess, because in my mind, I'm just running. I have nowhere to go. Because you didn't plan this. I didn't just, plan this, no, it's just like, spontaneous. this is spontaneous, and I just fucked up my whole life. Okay. One bad incident, and I'm not following through with what I should have, and I... Now, we, we spent some time really trying to figure out where, where your children are at. Yeah. What, what did we kind of come up with? Looking somewhere on Route 10 between, I think, Greenville and... What's kind of happening in the vehicle as far as how does it smell in there? Stinks like shit. What's happening with the children? You're telling me before. But I just I, the blood was probably just coming out of their bodies because I just left them in there, and mm -hmm. I believe that. Well, as far as I know, I think when your body dies, you well, blood and water separate. I think that's now we we had asked because you purchased the saws and everything. Had you used any of the saws on your children? I think I tried to start on that time, and I couldn't bring myself to do it. Okay. And we'll, we'll, get, we'll, we'll get to we'll get to where that happens. Had you tried with any of the other children? Mm -mm. No. It was kind of the whole center of this thing. Mm -hmm. He's what kind of started this all. He triggered us all. If if he would have told you what happened to the outlets that night, 
I would have got. I would have went and acted appropriately to try to help him. No, none of this would have happened. I think he didn't tell me because I think it was intended for me. I think that's why it would make sense okay. for him not to tell me. Jones is unable to take any personal responsibility for the death of his children. In Tim's mind, this entire event is still somehow Natan's fault. He continues to focus on all that he has lost and how this is affecting him and his life. He easily transitions back and forth, deteriorating into full emotional distress and then just as quickly transitioning back to a shockingly cold and unemotional affect. Jones is also in an intoxicated and altered state at this point. You can almost hear him formulate the plan with investigators that he is not responsible for his actions. He is insane just like his mother. He couldn't possibly be held responsible. Tim doesn't realize yet that investigators know about Amber's phone call the night he killed their children. He also doesn't know that they have been told about the comment where he said, Son, you could have hurt yourself, which was overheard by Amber. Without this knowledge, the prosecution alleges that Jones begins laying the groundwork for his insanity defense. He tells investigators he was terrified of his son that night. He doesn't believe his son was merely playing with an electrical outlet. Instead, he believes something far more sinister was at play. Jones tells investigators he believes his six-year-old son was tampering with the outlet in an attempt to cause him harm. He believes Natan wouldn't tell him why he touched the outlets because he didn't want his father to know he was planning on killing him. In fact, his son's sophisticated plan to electrocute him apparently also involved conspiring with the other younger children. That's right. This conspiracy also involved his two toddlers just one and two years of age. Tim can't explain away killing his toddlers unless they too were in on the evil plot. Even if they had witnessed him killing the other children, they wouldn't know how to process or verbalize this information. He's trying to convince investigators that his children with limited and or no verbal skills to speak of had actively engaged with the other children to kill him. To believe anything else would show he killed them out of spite and malice in an effort to keep his promise to Amber, a promise that she would never have custody of his children. Otherwise, why kill them? Tim tries his best to explain that in order to save himself, he had to strangle all of his children as they struggled to stay alive. It was all just a simple matter of self-defense in his eyes. Is the autopsy going to show with Natan? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Did you use the belt on him? It's gonna. I, I don't know. I didn't use the belt on him. No, he. I came in and he was gone. And that's when. That's when I went into panic mode, if you will. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you're you're not sure what I'm the not, autopsy will show I, for for Natan. I don't know what it's going to show. I don't know what actually was the. I don't know what his actual cause of death was. That's just the point. I didn't want to go. I was afraid I was going to just get myself locked up. Yeah. Did, did you use the belt on on Eli? I don't think I did. I think it was just bare hands. What? I'm not 100% sure. I don't want to lie to you. I, those memories yeah, right? are clouded. Well, what about who do you remember using the belt on? Babies. On the babies? <laughs> who were the babies? Tim. Pardon? Gabriel and Elaine, is that correct? What is Elaine is also known as Gab- Abigail, right? Yes. Okay. And when you say the belt, you put the belt around their... I used to strangle them. You used to strangle them. Why, why didn't you use your hands with them? I don't know. At that point, I wasn't thinking. At that point, I was just thinking, run, get rid of the bodies, and you're fucked, Tim. What? As the investigators continue to discuss the actual injuries and causes of death to the children, Tim can't help but insert his own thoughts of self-preservation into the discussion. With an astonishing lack of any self-awareness, he blurts out the concerns going through his head as his kids struggled for their lives. Tim was, quote, afraid to get locked up. Were the older children, did they put up a fight? I mean, what person's not? Right. 
You, you told us earlier that Eli said something to you before you killed him. What did he say to you? Take me with, Dad. What do you think Eli meant when he said that? Uh, I think he just wanted to go where I was. He knew the time was gone. Mm-hmm. So they... I, think, I don't know exactly what he meant by that. I mean, I don't know where he thought I was going. I didn't even know where I was going at that time. This is just happening. That fuck. It's like, in my mind, I don't know what to do now. Did any of the other children say anything before you killed them? Gabriel said, I love you. Okay, and that's a question I was gonna, you know, we're we're gonna ask you here, is we've we've gone over all this, and and you've been honest with us. Are we gonna find any of the other children cut up at all? No, you didn't try to burn them at all. I can't bring them. Tim, what? Okay. Tim, what about the bleach in the vehicle when you got stopped? Cover up the blood. The cover up the blood. Well, I also, no, in honest truth, I do like bleach because it makes stuff smell clean. So you're probably trying to get rid of some of that odor. Not just vehicle. that. I mean, no. So I mean, I would carry it around in the car even if I before because I like bleach and it made stuff okay. clean. You want to go? That was just me. Jones callously describes how his children struggled for life. Gabriel even telling his dad he loved him before he put the belt around his neck, silencing him forever. Again, the emotion is evident in his voice one minute, and the next minute, it's gone. Tim seamlessly transitions into his explanation of why he had bleach in the car, actually enjoying its smell even when it isn't necessary to mask the odor of death. He continues to sound like a guy offering do-it-yourself tips instead of a father grieving the loss of his children. Tim explains he wants to help officers find his children's bodies so they can have a proper burial. He describes abandoning their remains inside of trash bags on a logging road off Route 10 in rural Alabama. Once the children are gone, Tim withdraws $500 from his bank account and heads in his car towards Las Vegas to try his hand at Lady Luck. However, Tim's luck runs out when he is stopped in Mississippi during a routine traffic stop designed to catch intoxicated drivers. The police officers that stopped Tim that night suspected he was driving under the influence. It was only after noticing the odor of death emanating from the vehicle and observing a bucket filled with bleach that the officers ran Tim's name and realized he is on a be on the lookout list after concerned family members in the children's school reported Tim and the children missing. Um, why did you decide to confess? I didn't do the right thing. To do the right thing? That's exactly what you told me earlier. Do you feel guilty about the crime which you just confessed to? Yes. Yes? Okay. If so, why? I felt that I took measures that were extreme, not necessary because of fear. I fear my life because of kids. Okay. Did you do the crime on purpose? Natan was an accident. He was an accident. That was really an accident. I was just trying to find out what was going on. If you look at that picture of me holding my little son, uh -huh. yeah, it's just picture of me with the older one trying to say, son, what's going on? Mm -hmm. And he wouldn't tell me, and I don't know if he was messing with the stuff, and so, so PT took him over the edge. Natan was an accident, but you, you murdered the other four children? Yes. Okay. If Why did you do that? We talked about this earlier. The voices started kicking and said, you better do something. You're fucking out to Okay. What were you trying to accomplish by doing this crime? I was just trying to flee because I knew my time was short. I was going to get in trouble anyway. I'm not good at being bad. I'm not a good criminal. When did you decide to do this? After Natan had been gone, I started listening to what was going on in my head and I carried it out. I didn't carry out everything because if I did, I would carry out what was on those papers. That's the stuff that comes out of my head. What did you think about your children, just in general? I think that they were going to have issues like me. Issues like you? Okay. I what? think that they were going to have issues from not only from a broken home, I think that there's genetic diseases that... That's, that I think that there were some things that my dad, if you uh -huh. guys had seen yesterday, he doesn't know about my mom. Yeah. I think that there's things I know about my mom, even though I'm not... I wasn't around when it happened because I think I've got some of what she has. Tim is convinced he suffers from the same disease as his mother, who was diagnosed with a non-functioning and severe form of paranoid schizophrenia. He believes this disease of the mind may have also affected his children. 
which is why he believes they were conspiring to kill him. Later, he would tell police he believed the children, with Natan as their ringleader, were planning to chop him up into little pieces and feed him to the dogs so they could live with their mother. What kind of people do you think the children were when you committed the crime? I understand this is a weird question for what we're talking about, but we, we had to ask it earlier too. I think they were conspiring. I think they were conspiring against you? I definitely, it seems to make the most sense to me. I mean, why else would somebody go do something like that and not tell me what he's doing? Do you understand that you've just, oh, sorry, I'm getting behind myself. When you did this, did you think your actions could hurt the children? Yes. Yes? So you knew that what you were doing to the children was going to I knew that what was I was going to harm them or take their lives. It was to protect myself. Okay. I know that sounds fucking pathetic. Now, when you did this crime, did you know it was wrong? At the time, I didn't think any of it was wrong. It happened in this fuck I'm happenstance and let me finish it up now. Okay. When you did the crime, did you know it was against the law? time I didn't think about the law so I'm gonna say no okay the law didn't come into my mind I wasn't caring about the law dealing with dead children in my hands fuck the law I'm in trouble man my kids are dead yeah did you think you might Sorry. get caught no yeah I knew I was gonna get caught I'm not a good criminal it was a matter of time gotcha why did you think that just because you weren't a good crip I'm not a good grandma's told me something that's the truth Tim you ain't I told it to my kids too you guys ain't good being bad so be good you guys ain't good at being bad so be good while Tim acknowledges that he knew what he was doing would harm the children, he isn't so comfortable saying that what he knew he had done was wrong. He had to protect himself, after all, but his actions in the days immediately following the gruesome murders prove otherwise. He knew what he did was wrong, and he put into motion various plans to cover up his wrongdoing. Yet he continues insisting that his children, all under the age of nine years old, conspired to kill him. Like trained assassins executing the perfect plan, he intervened to save himself. What did you do to protect yourself from getting caught? Just drive and try to disguise the bags and get rid of the stuff at the house. What all did you get rid of at the house? Uh, everything. I gave the neighbors. Uh, just, you're just saying your general possessions. Yeah, I just okay. didn't think about keeping my stuff anymore. Well, hell with it. Yeah. I gave all my stuff away. I mean, my life's over when I thought about it. Have there been times you wanted to do something like this but decided against it? I mean, I've had these thoughts, but none of this happened until this actually materialized. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Okay, why didn't you do that in the past if you've had these thoughts before? Why didn't I? Yes. I didn't have any reason to act on them. No reason to act on them? Okay. Would you have done this if a uniformed officer had been standing next to you? Yes. Even I wouldn't have cared. No, man, because... Elbow to elbow with you, you would have still I wouldn't have cared, yeah. And here's why. At that point in time, I didn't care because I saw myself as a damn target. And I saw him as having the gun in his hand, if you will. I know he was a kid, but that's how I saw it. Like, shit. He's, when, you you say, when you say him, you're talking about... Natan. Natan. And how old is Natan? Six years old. Six years old. Did anyone tell you to do this? The voices inside my voices head. In your head. And just confirm the voices in your head are not God. They're not God. No, God would... No, this ain't Isaac and Abraham. Okay. I don't know, I felt like I was marked for dead, if you will, and I was just acting accordingly. Did you have any strange or unusual mental experiences around the time of the crime? Yes. Of if, course. If so, what were they and, and when did they begin? When he told me what he said? Yes. All kinds of stuff started triggering, and then I worked harder to get out of him to try to see if maybe I could put it back together, and then I realized that this he's not doing this per se to... He's not telling me what's going on because it appears he's got something intended for me and he doesn't want me to know that it's right for me. Because yeah. normally they're pretty apt to tell me the truth and if they don't, I give them a couple squats and a push-up and they, they spit it out. Mm -hmm. He ain't doing that, which means there's some motive that he does not want Is me to Is that why you pushed him so hard? Yes, I tried pushing more. Give me some more, a little more pressure. Maybe he'll just tell me what's going on. That's always worked before. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that it didn't work this time tells me that there was something that he didn't want me to know. It, when he got pushed to his limit, did he just die right, pass out right there, or what? What happened? Clay he went to bed and he was tired. He went to bed and he just never woke up. And then I came back to check on him and he wasn't breathing. <laughs> I said, "Oh shit! What have I done? My kids dead in my hand. They, they're gonna think I murdered him. I just beat him. He's fucking with the owl. I don't know what happened to him. And then all sorts of stuff starts tricking in my head, and that's like." The other four become a victim. 
Tim's mother Cynthia disappeared from his life when he was about three years old, sparking lifelong feelings of intense self-loathing and abandonment. Tim always believed as a child that his father and grandmother were lying to him and intentionally preventing him from being with his mother. He was convinced that she was looking for him and longed to raise him. It's ironic given the fact that his ex-wife Amber had longed to raise her own children. When Tim asked about his mother, his father would vaguely say, she's not here. He didn't want to tell Tim his mother was severely mentally ill and institutionalized. Tim's father met his mother, Cynthia, when they were both 16. As teenagers, they got pregnant with Tim less than a year later. They moved into the basement of Tim's grandmother's home, who would act as his surrogate mother throughout his life. Tim's biological mother, Cynthia, began exhibiting bizarre behavior. Soon, his grandmother didn't trust leaving Tim alone in the care of his mother. Cynthia would refuse to hold, feed, or care for Tim and she would refuse to allow others to do the same. She would withhold food because she didn't want a fat baby and believed he needed to be cleansed with laxatives. She would dress him in winter clothing during harsh Chicago summers, insisting his skin could not be touched by sunlight. She would also give Tim ice baths as an infant as punishment for crying. Eventually, Cynthia would run away with little Tim until Tim Sr. would find her and bring her and the baby back. In between regular absences, Cynthia began working as a sex worker and would repeatedly get arrested and land in jail. The last time his mother was arrested, Tim Sr. offered to bail her out if she agreed to give back little Tim. When the officers told Cynthia she could leave if she told them where to find the baby, she would insist she didn't have a child at all. Tim and Cynthia would reconcile and soon they were expecting a second child. When Cynthia was almost full term, Little Tim's grandmother, Roberta Thornsberry, found her in the bathtub covered in blood. It appeared she had tried to give herself an abortion. The baby was later stillborn at the hospital. Eventually, by the time Tim was two and a half years old, his father filed for divorce, seeking primary custody of him just as Tim would do some three decades later with his own children. After Cynthia made a few kidnapping attempts, she eventually gave up on Tim and disappeared for good from his life at the age of three. Tim would say that his biggest fear in life was his children growing up the same way he did, without a mother. Oddly, as much as Tim resented not having his mother in his life, it's a scenario he would recreate with his own children by refusing to allow Amber to have any control, say, or even unsupervised time with her children. With the absence of Tim's mentally ill mother, his life was still filled with challenges. Tim would go back and forth between his grandmother's home and his father's home throughout his young childhood. Neither home was a refuge from violence or abuse. Both his father and grandmother would both be arrested for domestic violence throughout his childhood. Tim Sr. married several times with multiple police reports documenting his violence against Tim's various stepmothers. In a similar manner, Tim's grandmother would physically abuse his step-grandfather as well as other members of the family. One documented incident notes her use of a firearm, ultimately missing her intended target. It's with this history in mind that Tim develops very stern beliefs on parenting and how to instill respect for life within his own children. I'm old school in the sense that I think kids should get their ass busted by a teacher. Okay. I don't like the fact, and here's, here's one of my problems. This is what the DSS was about. Yeah. When I grew up, I didn't worry about kids bringing guns to school and blowing the hell out of each other with a teacher. That didn't happen because there was a healthy fear of, and you got corrected by parents. These day and age, kids bring guns to school because I don't think that they're corrected at home and they take other people's lives because they got no respect for authority. I said, I will not let my kids go out and go blasting people away because I'm not teaching them to respect human life. Mm -hmm. So that was my whole motivation with the time to push them. Hey, dude, you need to tell me what you're up to, man. I need to know. Yeah. And he wouldn't tell me. Without a trace of irony, Tim discusses the value of life and his theories on the reason why there are so many school shootings with investigators. He believes his parenting philosophy can prevent such actions. The merits of his plan are in its simplicity. Tim believes his children, and likewise all children, should have their, quote, asses beaten until they learn to respect authority. In fact, 
When Elias was in kindergarten, he had brought his father's pocket knife to school for show and tell. As the school had a zero-tolerance policy for weapons, even for children in kindergarten, Elias was suspended from school. When Tim met with school officials to discuss the incident, he insisted that the school call the police and have his son arrested. He wanted to have his five-year-old son, quote, scared straight. Tim suggested that Elias be put in a jail cell for a few hours so he would learn a valuable lesson. When the school declined the discipline recommendation, Tim took matters into his own hands, literally. It was right after this incident that the school reported Tim for child abuse after Elias explained his father had choked him and he had the bruises to prove it. When Elias graduated from kindergarten later that year in a cap and gown, he was the only child without a parent present. Tim was punishing his son by refusing to attend. Do you think you have a mental illness? I think something's not right. I don't know what it, I think I may have some, not a, some. Okay. If I'm anything like my mom, yeah, I've got lots. Oh, gotcha. Yes, sir. All right. Um, a couple of things I did want to go through with you before. We had talked about when this happened, the, the children, when this happened in the living room, you were saying the bodies were, were on the ground. And the other kids, did they know what was coming? I don't know. I mean, they, maybe they exposed. I, I have no clue. Mm -hmm. I wasn't exactly in the state of mind watching. Hey, is he, does he care? No. Right? Did they put up a fight? Well, I mean, what normal humans not. Okay, and I, I, I understand you're trying to tell me they did. What do you mean by that, though? They just, they didn't want to go. What do you mean? They didn't want their lives taken. Why didn't you get help? Before all this, you, you told us you had thoughts about this. Why didn't you get help? Just put it off thinking I'll do it tomorrow. I'll get help later. Why not give the children to your father? I didn't think that way. How about to their mother? She didn't want them. She said that they couldn't come with her if they had asked. They, the two, oh, two of them, Natan and Mira, had made a plot and they originally got DSS involved in the attempt to, they were gonna try to get themselves taken out of the house. Mm -hmm. So they made up a bunch of lies, as the, the lady would say. If you talk to her, they made up some stuff that weren't true and they found, she found out, she got to the bottom of it. But Tim, why, why after things happened with Natan, you're telling us that that was not done intentionally? No, that was not done intentionally. The other well, it was done intentionally in the sense that I was trying to just get answers out of him. Okay. Wasn't, I didn't go and intentionally just go hurt him. But that wasn't true at all. Amber very much wanted her children. She had been working years to improve herself in the hopes that she would one day be allowed more time with them. However, Tim was never going to allow that to happen. When he killed Natan, he knew his other four children would go back to their mother, and that was a movement of power and control he was not willing to allow. Tim explained his actions. The night he murdered his children, as the result of an undiagnosed mental illness. He was convinced that he was sick like his mother. Why else would he kill his children? It wasn't because he feared losing control of his remaining kids to his ex-wife. Tim still wasn't ready to be introspective with regard to his own motives for his actions, beyond insisting that he was sick. After discussing his theories on why he killed his children, which goes between the voices in his head and the conspiracy by his children to live with their mother, he changes the topic back to religion and the reason why he values his own life so much. You say you're not suicidal at all. If I was gonna, if I was gonna do it, it would have already happened. No, man, I'm not willing to take that. I'll do a lot of stuff, but... Because you said your religious beliefs. Taking my life is not one of them. Because what happens? You say if you kill yourself... If you kill yourself, well, maybe nothing does happen and maybe... Lord, I love you. Maybe God's a myth and we die and we go to the ground. But if he's not, and it's real, well, if, if it does what it says, hell's not a very fun place. I don't think it plans on freezing over anytime soon. I don't want to go there. Tim continues to follow the tenets of the Bible, perhaps skipping over the part where it states, Thou shall not kill, including one's own children. 
Ultimately, Jones assisted law enforcement in the recovery of his children's bodies. The bodies he abandoned as casually as roadside garbage. Agent Mackey with the FBI knew Jones had led them to the right place when he opened his door and was immediately overcome with the stench of death and decay. I had actually um, helped in moving some of the bodies into the body bags. We had opened up the, um, I didn't open up the garbage bags themselves, but I wanted to see if all five children were there. Um, I also wanted to see if they were dismembered in any way. Um, so I did help place a few of the bodies into the body bags and made sure we accounted for all five of the children. Despite all that Tim had done to Amber, including brutally murdering their children, she still couldn't bring herself to wish him harm. After all the things that Tim had done to her, including try to turn her own children against her, she still refused to ask the jury for the death penalty for her ex-husband. I personally, myself, can't bring myself to want anybody to die. Um, so it's a really hard, I hear what my kids went through, and I'm just being honest. I hear what my kids went through and what they endured. I'm sorry. And as a mother, if I could personally rip his face off, I would. That's, that's the mom in me. That's, that's the mama bear in me wanting to just make him feel everything they felt. I don't personally feel like I have the right to put anybody's uh, life in my hands. I don't wish that upon anybody. I don't wish the Jones family to feel what I felt losing my sons. I do not wish that. I will I will never have my grandbabies. I will never have have those things. In what can only be described as adding insult to injury, the defense subpoenaed Amber to testify on behalf of her ex-husband during the penalty phase of the trial. Tim's last hope of saving himself were fully dependent upon his ex-wife's words of mercy. Mercy he never showed to her or to his own children in life or in death. She believed her children loved their dad and wouldn't want him put to death. But despite these conflicting feelings, she felt the jury was qualified to make the right decision. Even when you physically left the residence, he knew you still loved and cared for your children, didn't he? He did. He did know. He knew that on August 28th. He did. I want to talk with you a little about what led you here today to testify in this phase. Of course, you testified in the guilt phase because you had direct knowledge of what happened on the night of August 28th. Yes, ma'am. You were the last person to speak with Natalia. Yes. You respect the state's right to seek the death penalty in this case. I do. I just can't. You don't want to be the who would have to make that decision. Right, I can't make that decision. And we've never asked that of you, have we? No. In the end, Tim couldn't find a way to love his own children more than he hated his ex-wife. He blamed everyone else for his actions, except himself. And when it came time for him to confront his devilish deeds, the minute he began to feel the walls of accountability closing in, he lashed out. And when faced with finally losing control and his children, he decided that he would take them all out of this world. For if he couldn't have them, no one could, especially his ex-wife Amber. I feel like I went insane. Not that I am. I went insane. To go insane, there has to be a catalyst, and the catalyst was Natan. Dad, don't you remember? Here's the manipulation. Don't you remember how I always wanted my mom and she wasn't there? Justifying it to his dad. I saw that in Natan. I didn't want that for him. Was he caring for Natan? No. And he says he stacked. He lost it. Because that night, Natan wanted to be with his mommy. Don't you know after mommy hung up or got shut off that phone, he was crying for mom. Mom, mom, mom. 
There was nowhere to hear, no one to hear except his siblings. What he faced was not punishment at that point. It was rage. He says, I snapped. I lost it. Tells you that. And then he makes the most incredible statement of all. So you see, you can put this one on Amber. Because if she had been home instead of next door, bopping the boy next door, none of this would have happened. Three months after he has killed his kids. That's the words of this man. Do you think a life sentence is going to have a Tim Jones Jr. sitting in a cell thinking about what he did? Do you think that's what he does sitting in that room? He blames Cindy. She's in my head. He blames Natan. He blames Amber. But I'm insane, so whatever I did, I get a pass. Ultimately, the jury didn't give any passes to Tim Jones. After just two hours of deliberation, they were ready to decide his fate. They recommended the state of South Carolina put him to death. So what ultimately drove this father to kill his own five children? Whether he was severely mentally ill or just suffering from the broken bonds of a mother's love abandoned twice over, it seems Tim reveled in controlling his surroundings. And when confronted with the obvious reality that he had finally lost all control, his rage exploded and his true colors finally shone through. Exodus chapter 23 verse 7 reads, have nothing to do with false charge, and do not put an innocent or honest person to death, for I will not acquit the guilty. Was Tim Jones guilty of cold-blooded murder, or guilty of obeying the many voices in his head? Only he knows the answer, and he isn't giving up control of it anytime soon. Was Tim legally responsible for his actions? We want to hear from you. Call our fan line at 651-337-9405 or share your thoughts with us on social media. We might just use your comments on the next episode of Invisible Choir. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Invisible Choir. Until next time, remember to never whistle at night, because there may be more lurking in the shadows than darkness. Thank you for listening to Invisible Choir. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you subscribe, and visit InvisibleChoir.com to learn about our Patreon program. Invisible Choir Premium, which brings you additional episodes and bonus content for just a few dollars per month.